Thanks to Bombfell for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. Also, thanks to Audible for supporting Motley Fool Answers. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, Allison. Are you ready to kick off October? Because it's going to be big. <laughs> Huge! Huge! Epic! In this week's episode, we are kicking off the first of our four-part series examining a history of market crashes in the United States. Why? Because it's October! An auspicious time. Also, a bunch of market crashes happened right around this time. I think something like nine of the 15 worst market crashes for the Dow happened in October. Something along those lines. So, this is all scary, sad, Sell bad. all you can! Just kidding. No. Really, well, we don't no. believe that. The good news, though, is that Morgan Housel is back to hold your hand through this terrifying journey in time. We'll also answer your question about using a simple bucket system for allocating your moolah. Will it work? Let's find out. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. It's time for Answers, Answers, and today's question comes from Michael. Michael writes, Have you done an episode on the bucket system for allocating your retirement funds? It seems to me that having your retirement funds set up in buckets, for instance, having the next two years of income in cash, the next three in bonds, and the rest in stocks, should allow your nest egg to grow, but protect you from short-term market drops. What do you think, bro? Well, Michael, uh, you pretty much explained it, but yes, we do have something like that. Uh, but we call it the income cushion rather than a bucket strategy. And there's a name that came from a guy named Dave Braze, who used to write the retiree report for The Motley Fool way back in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it's basically just what you said. When you look at the money you need from your portfolio while you're in retirement, so not Social Security and pensions, take that amount you need for the next five years. First couple of years, keep it very safe in cash, short-term CDs. For the next few years, you could do maybe short-term bonds, although as we've discussed before, the bond market has its own risks these days with lower interest rates that might go up. So you could even just do CDs for that. And the rest could be in stocks. As we've mentioned before, the average bear market lasts about three to five years from peak to trough and back to peak again. So the idea is, if the market does tank, you have that cash or those bonds to live off of in the meantime. So we don't call it the bucket approach, but I think that's a good idea. Now, some people will expand those buckets to, I would say, longer time frames. So they might have that first bucket of cash, second bucket of bonds, and then maybe a third bucket for the stocks that they'll need in years, maybe five to 10, and say, use that for your safer stocks, your blue chip stocks, dividend payers, the ones that are less volatile, and then for the money you need 10 years out, what you put in that bucket is small cap stocks, international stocks, emerging market stocks. There have been lots of analyses about whether this is the right way to do it, um, as compared to just coming up with an overall asset allocation and just taking money as you need it. Generally speaking, the bucket approach doesn't come out on top. Really, I think the benefit of the bucket approach is psychological, hmm. just knowing that if you're tired, your stocks go down 30, 40, 50%, you know that you don't need that money in the near term because you have the cash or whatever else on the side. And ideally, you can just wait until the market recovers. What's probably 
Just as important as having that, that cushion, though, is when the market does go down in retirement, is to cut back on your expenses. Many studies have shown that's actually probably one of the most powerful things you can do, because if the market goes down and you can cut back on your expenses, you don't have to sell your stocks when you're down, and you can wait until they recover. Thanks to Bombfell for sponsoring Motley Fool Answers. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps them find the right clothes. So, for our gentlemen listeners of the show, here's how it works. Once you sign up online, you complete a simple questionnaire. You are matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece. Your stylist then emails you a preview of your selections, after which you have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel altogether. You're in total control. Afterwards, Bombfell will ship you the selected clothes and you'll have seven days to decide if you want to keep them. Only pay for what you want to keep, send the rest back with free shipping both ways. Bro, what did you think of your Bombfell experience? It was a great experience. You go and you answer some questions about yourself and your taste and things like that. Get it in the mail, keep what you like, send back what you don't. Um, I like it because I'm not known for my wardrobe diversity. Well, you are. You, t-shirt. <laughs> Today you're wearing a t-shirt with uh, Boba Fett on it from Star Wars in a very sort of Liechtenstein comic sort of outfit. Right. And the clothes that I was sent were not, were not anything that I would personally go pick out, mm-hmm. but I kept it because it was interesting. It was something new for me. And have you worn it out to like a special occasion? Or? I have worn out it, once or twice. You're like, this is the special outfit. It is. And, and I'd probably wear it more if... If I worked at a place where I couldn't wear my shorts and my Boba Fett shirt, but yeah. it is it was more it is much more of a business casual type of wardrobe, at least what I requested. Mm-hmm. So it's for the special occasions. <laughs> Right. Well, we have a special offer just for listeners of the show. For $25 off your first purchase, go to bombfell.com slash fool. That's bombfell.com slash fool. Let me spell that for you. B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. I'm sitting on top of the world Just rolling along, just rolling along October is an auspicious month here. Not only did a couple, a few market crashes happen in this month, but it's also October. So we thought, let's dedicate the whole month to looking back at the history of market crashes in the United States. And joining us to talk about that is Morgan Housel. Hi. Hey, guys. How are you? So the first one we're going to talk about is... The Great Depression. The dun, big dun, one. Dun. The granddaddy the big of them all. The granddaddy. And then we'll just move forward in history. They didn't mince any words naming it. No, they did <laughs> they not. They just wanted to make it accurate. <laughs> they did called not. It the Great Depression. It's not just a depression. It is a great depression. It's great. So, uh, so let me set, set the stage for you. It's the Roaring Twenties. In the wake of World War I, the nation's wealth more than doubles. This means that a lot of people had enough money to become full-blown consumers. They could buy newfangled things like electric refrigerators and radios, unless we forget the Model T. In this prosperous America, you could have anything, except alcohol, of course. But the party did stop, <laughs> and suddenly. So today, Morgan joins us for our series this month looking at market crashes in the U.S. And why not start with the big one, the Great Crash, Black Tuesday. But before we get into the actual crash, Morgan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Uh, you're going to be doing a lot of talking today. Yeah. And hopefully our listeners like you. So. Well, if not, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there. <laughs> <laughs> you can turn the channel. That's true. <laughs> we'll give you your money back. All right. So, what was life like leading up to the Great Depression? So, I think whenever people talk about what caused the Great Depression, what caused the crash of 1929, it's always easy to 
point to one thing. But then what caused that one thing? Like you can always keep going back at time and say, what, what really caused all this to happen? And if we're talking about the Great Depression, I like to start in World War I. With something really important happened in, in World War I. Frederick Lewis Allen, who is a, a, a great historian who wrote a history in the 1920s and 1930s, he made this point that during World War I, to finance a war, they sold liberty bonds to average everyday Americans, not just wealthy people, but everyday Americans were buying liberty bonds to finance the war. And it was the first time that most Americans had any experience with a stockbroker. Because stockbrokers up until that point only dealt with wealthy people and aristocrats. And now it was everyday, you know, train conductors and farmers going in and talking to a stockbroker to buy these liberty bonds because there's such a push of patriotism to buy these bonds. And because of that, not only did people get their first taste of what it was like to work with a stockbroker, but stockbrokers had to learn all kinds of new skills to sell to these average everyday people. And high pressure sales tactics had to like needle their insecurities and get them to buy something that they really didn't need. But the, the salesman's job was to force, you know, kind of convince them that you needed this. So it set up, you know, in the late 19 teens, this early dynamic of Main Street's affiliation with Wall Street that had no relationship before that. So that's kind of where I think the seeds of the Great Depression were ultimately planted, of getting everyday people who didn't have a lot of money, had no sophistication, no training or education, getting them involved with Wall Street. But then they had no place to get educated either. You're just going to have to trust this stockbroker guy. And then, so, so that's kind of like the first seeds that were planted. And then after World War I, all the troops came home, devastating period for the war, and the economy instantly falls into a really deep recession. Really bad. High deflation, really high unemployment in the early 1920s. And Frederick Lewis Allen makes this really interesting point, I think, that after, that between the war and then the recession when people came home, the people just got tired of being tired. After like seven years of everything going wrong, there's a period kind of in the early and mid 1920s where people just kind of said, I'm ready to have fun again. Mm. We've, we've, been, we've been dealing with like a decade of everything going wrong between war and the recession. I'm ready to let loose and have fun again. And it was almost like the spark that he wrote about that in the early 1920s, people were just ready to have fun and then just kind of let loose. And a few other things happened at the same time that's really important to the lead up of the Great Depression. Um, to con- continue on with the uh, stories of really awful things happening, 1921, there was a really awful famine in Russia, and the United States wanted to do something about it. So the U.S. government set an artificially high price for the price of, of wheat and told farmers, as much wheat as you can grow, we will buy it from you at this, ar- at this inflated price. I, the price of wheat at the time was, was, I think, 40 cents a bushel, and the government said, we will buy as much as you can grow at a dollar a bushel. so that they could send it to Russia to help help break the famine. So you had all these farmers that overnight, basically, were minting money and planting as much uh, wheat and corn as they could and making a fortune doing it, selling it to the government. And it was so lucrative to be a farmer back then during this time because of these inflated prices that they had what were called suitcase farmers, which were people from like Chicago and Minneapolis who were maybe they were lawyers or insurance salesmen that would take the train into Iowa and buy a small farm and grow wheat. You know, they'd come in with their suitcase and they'd be farmers on the weekend and go home because you can make so much money doing this. Wow. And farming was such a big part of the economy that then, back then that in the early 1920s when this started, it was just a huge stimulus to the overall economy, this big farming surplus that was going on. At the same time that you had people that were just ready to get back into having fun and helping grow the economy again, 
And so it was like almost overnight in the early 1920s, the U.S. economy just took off like a rocket ship. Part of that was like coming out of this recession in the early 1920s, and then you combine that with this big farming stimulus, and it was just boom, off to the races. And because of the psychology at the time, Frederick Lewis Allen writes a lot about this at the time, of this, people were so ready to have fun again that you mix that excitement with that much extra money that was flowing around, and it was just a boom time in the 1920s. And you mix, you mix optimism with a lot of money, and people start making really bad decisions. <laughs> well, and then if you also add in debt, because right. a lot of people didn't have necessarily all the money to buy these new consumer goods or these investments, but there were people who were willing to lend them money to do that. Back then, the margin requirement to buy borrow money to buy investments was only 10%. So if you wanted to buy $1,000 worth of stock, you only need to put down 100 bucks. All that thing had to do was drop 10%, and then you've lost all the equity in that investment. And not only that, but buying stocks on margin in the 1920s, when there was a huge bull market, was the normal thing to do. It was like the equivalent of when people buy homes today, do they take out a mortgage? Of course, everybody takes out a mortgage. And back then, it was if you were buying stocks, of course you use margin. Whereas today, if you're using margin, it's like, well, you're either reckless or you're brilliant and you have some crazy idea. <laughs> but back then, everybody used margin and they used a ton of margin. So everyone's stock position was really leveraged up, which just kind of it did two things. It made the run up that much more potent because you had people who didn't have a lot of money to their name that can go out and buy a ton of stock. And also, it just made the, you know, it, it was just a bunch of dry kindling sitting around for when the crash eventually came. And, and also, you know, during this period in the 1920s, two of, I think, the most important inventions of the 20th century, the car and the radio, were coming online for average everyday people. And that just added to the sense of optimism that, of what we could do, and, you know, what we could do as a country, what our potential was, like completely changed American life in the span of a few years, the car and the radio. So then you add all of that together. You have people who, for the first time ever, have connections to stockbrokers. You have this big economic boom from farming. And you have all this optimism coming from the car and the airplane. And the 1920s, I think a lot of people know, the booming 20s, the roaring 20s, you know, it, was just, it was a great time for a lot of people that just led to uh, a lot of excitement and over-optimism. And so it led to, in the, re- in the late 1920s, probably the biggest stock bubble that we've ever seen. And that really took place in just like a year or two. It was really like 1928 and early 1929 that the market just went straight up, just went parabolic. And day after day after day, um, stock prices for all companies were just going straight up and increased by several multiples just in the late 1920s to create a bubble that it's hard to measure it because earnings and whatnot weren't measured back then, but probably much bigger than the 1999 stock bubble, just completely detached from reality by 1929. So what actually made the bubble burst? So do we do we go to do we go to Black Tuesday? Is that cuz that's what I picture, right? You picture the stockbrokers jump well you don't literally picture it maybe. You know, that's macabre. You can, you can if you want, but, but you know, <laughs> the is that is that when the bubble actually bursts on Black Tuesday or So for most of 1929 there were a lot of smart people in newspapers and whatnot saying this is this is getting a little out of hand. No one said this is going to completely burst and come down and cause the next, you know, a huge depression. Robert Schiller, who's a Yale economist, and we've we've interviewed him several times in Molly Fool, uh, he uh, has spent a bunch of time with economic historians, saying, "Find me one person in the 1920s who predicted how this was going to play out, predicted the crash 
in the magnitude that it eventually occurred and the ensuing Great Depression. And he said, no one, no one is, no one back then predicted what would happen. In fact, so, it was almost the opposite. I mean, you have people like Irving Fisher, who mm-hmm. was the preeminent economist back then, saying in 1929, it, stocks have reached what looks like a permanent plateau. And, and you had even the pessimists would say, you know, due for a correction, I think they called them breaks back then, were due for a break. But no one, no one was really predicting the mayhem that came from it. One of the things that I think is interesting back then is that a lot of the metrics that we use for sizing up the stock market today, the P.E. ratio, really basic things that you learn in Investing 101, didn't exist back then in people's minds. So the first really book that put together how people should value stocks in a rational way based on discounted earnings, which today we kind of approximate with the P.E. ratio, was was a book written by Ben Graham uh, called Securities Analysis. That was written in 1934. Hmm. So this was years before that. The first, the first real book that uh, a, f- a smart finance professor put together the theory of intrinsic value, like what is a company worth, worth based off of rational accounting measures and whatnot, uh, was a book written by a guy named John Burr Williams. Um, the book was called The Theory of Investment Value, and that was 1938. This is a decade after the, the crash. So if you go, if you try to put yourself back in 1929, looking at what's going on in the stock market, we just didn't really have uh, the knowledge or the metrics or the data to really understand how inflated stock prices were. We do today with the advantage of not only hindsight, but a greater understanding of what stocks prices should be based off of earnings and whatnot. But even back then, the smartest finance professors were really just starting to scratch the surface of how a market should be valued. So people really didn't know. And was it a lot of like gossip and whispers, like guys chomping on cigars saying, "Hey, I got a buddy. His boat's coming in, and it's going to take off." Or you know, yeah, no, no I, I'm I think, mixing I think metaphors that was, of the boat taking <laughs> off. But there were two you know things. I mean. There were two types of investors. There was like your old school aristocratic investors who just own stocks for a hundred years and they just they just cash the dividends, and that's what they were. And stocks in that point were almost indistinguishable from bonds. Like the, you didn't really care or even know what the price changes were. You just got your dividend checks every month or every quarter, and that was it. So that was one side. And then the other side was just pure casino. Had mm-hmm. nothing to do with what the companies were doing or what they were paying in dividends. It was just a casino going back and forth, maybe like Bitcoin today, where prices go up and down, but it's not based off of anything intrinsic. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's terrifying. All right, so then this doesn't last. No. <laughs> let's, let's get to the actual, the actual bursting of the bubble. So what's interesting too is that it didn't happen in one day. We talk about the crash of 1929, but it played out over a week, and it was basically three days in October of 1929 where the market fell about 12 percent each day consecutively. Uh, and so, and, and I think putting that together rather than all happening at once, having it spread out a little bit, kind of gave uh, investors at the time. It, it was not. I don't think it was as traumatic as we would expect it to be today, because it happened slower than, say, the crash of 1987. It just kind of played out slowly, and people were so accustomed to prosperity and rising stock prices that uh, the 30% decline that happened in October was it a big deal? Of course. Did stockbrokers jump out the window? Literally, yes. There are accounts of that happening. But I think between people were so shocked, and a 30% decline in the grand scheme of things isn't that huge. I mean, in three days, it's big, but it's not that big a deal. I mean, stock prices fell 20% in the US in 2011. So, there was was still a pretty big sense of optimism at the time. And Herbert Hoover, who was president, and Andrew Mellon, who was secretary of treasury at the time, made a big push in the media and newspapers to say, 
business is sound, the fundamentals are strong. This is a temporary break, as they called it back then, but we're going to pull through this. Everything is okay. And I think people bought it at the time. And so as, we, as the month kept playing out and into November and December of 1929, things kind of stabilized and recovered a little bit. And the big idea was that was it. Like That was tough, but you know things are going to move on and things are going to keep going. So there was a little bit of a rally after that, but people really had no idea what was still to come. How, yeah. So what was still to come? How long did the stuff? How long? How long are we going to suffer here? So even by mid 1930, it's still like most economists thought by looking around at what was happening that we were in a pretty bad recession, but not nothing more than that. You know, a pretty severe recession, but nothing of historic terms. And then it was it was a summer of 1930, and as we moved into 1931, that the banking system started cracking, which was caused a lot by. Uh, Two things. One, all these investors with margin debt who were buying from banks were now defaulting on their on their debt that they were that they were borrowing against. But also, uh, wheat prices and corn prices started plunging. So then farmers who had been uh, you know had been a big driver of the economic boom in the 1920s and had leveraged up with all kinds of debt to buy farm equipment and whatnot were defaulting at record rates too. And back then, you know, the Federal Reserve worked in a different way. They didn't bail out banks like they do today. And more importantly, the big thing was there was no FDIC insurance. So if your local bank was going down, your life savings was going with it. Which So that began the bank runs of the early 1930s, which is where things really started getting out of hand. And you know, it, didn't, it kind of peaked in 1932. And there was a starting kind of like a wave of bank failures in 1932. And the big one actually was a bank in Austria called Credit Ansalt in, in Vienna. It was a huge bank in Austria, and it failed overnight, and no one really saw it coming. And then that, I mean, there, there have been some economists who've kind of mapped this, how it happened. After Credit Ansalt failed in Vienna, then it spread to Paris, and then spread to London, and then eventually spread to New York. And then it was, it was a bank called the Knickerbocker Trust <laughs> in the United States that failed in New York. And after that, the curtain just came down. Knickerbocker. That's like the most perfect name perfect for a name failing for bank. In bank right? Right? Yes, it's, you couldn't write that. And then so after that, after the bank started failing, that's where things started getting really ugly in the United States. So now we're into like 1932. So we're three years after the crash of 1929, which I think to me that's that's probably the biggest misconception of the Great Depression is that you know there was a crash in 1929 and then boom, welcome to the Great Depression. And it wasn't. It played out. The first couple of years played out kind of slowly over a period of many, many years. And if you think about uh, the 2008 financial crisis, the worst of that was really contained in literally like a 90-day period. It was late 2008, September, October, November, and then it was pretty much over. The Great Depression played out over three years. And that, I think, did the opposite of what the 1920s did, is that people just got accustomed to pessimism. Mm-hmm. And they got they, their hope vanished after you've just been beaten up consistently for three years. People just lose all their optimism and all their faith. And that feeds on itself. Because you know, if, if businesses and employees and investors don't have any optimism, don't have any confidence, then it's really hard to get Nothing the economy going. Up. So the stock market bottomed in mid-1932. Unemployment in the economy bottomed in 1933, four years after the crash. So how do, how do we recover? How do we get out of this? This is where like, things could get political and you know, a lot of people still disagree with this 90 years later, but Franklin Roosevelt is, is elected in 1932, brings in, is that right, 1932? Yeah. And brings in, um, you know, starts, starts with the New Deal. So there's that element of it, of economic stimulus from the New Deal, just changing tactics and whatnot. There's also a thing 
with all recessions that if prices get low enough, stock prices, housing prices, you know, labor prices, if things get low enough, then it's it's attractive to get back in business. And every investment, every business opportunity is attractive at some price. And prices got ridiculously low in the 1930s. Everywhere, the price of labor, the price of food. By 1932, stock prices were down 89% from their 1929 peak. So just completely obliterated. And But there's still a lot of good companies out there that were still profitable, still paying dividends. So if you look at... Uh, there's a recreation of what the S&P 500 would have been back there. Robert Schiller put it together. The dividend yield in 1932 was almost 20%, which is wow. cr- which is crazy, but yeah. that's how low prices had fallen. So whenever prices get that low, there's just enough opportunity that even if there's an inkling of optimism or opportunity somewhere, somebody's going to take it and eventually just kind of feeds on itself. So then there's a pretty big boom both in the economy and the stock market from 1932 to 1937. And it was pretty big. I think stock prices tripled during that period from oh, 32 wow. to 37. So it was actually one of the best five year periods in history to, to own stocks during that period. Now, you talked about the FDIC. Did that come out of this? Like, what other legislation or regulation came out um, following the Depression to keep this from happening again? Because it's obviously never going to happen again. <laughs> Knock on wood, right? No, it's only going to happen for the next three episodes of this podcast. Not this bad, of course. So, but. the few big ones besides FDIC insurance, one was the SEC. And a lot of the reason that the market was um, grew so high in the 1920s is because fraud and uh, in just bad behavior in the stock market was rampant. Uh, one of the big actors during the 1920s who made a fortune, kind of ripping people off in the stock market, was Joseph Kennedy, JFK's father. Made a fortune in the 1920s, bringing together groups of investors, and then they would corner a stock and put out false information. And since they had a corner, they could drive up the price. And then once rising prices got other people excited, and then they would dump their shares back on them. So there was all this misbehavior in the stock market that was perfectly legal back then, even though they were really taking advantage of vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, with that came the SEC. And the punchline of the story is, you know who the first chairman of the SEC was? Joseph Same Kennedy. Guy. Same <laughs> guy. What was FDR's quote about that? I forget. Something along the lines, if you want to catch a bank robber, you got to put oh, a criminal yeah, yeah. in charge. Something, yeah. <laughs> something along those lines. So, so you know, that, that was the other big thing besides the FDIC was, was um, the SEC. And then there's two other big securities laws that came out of it, one in 1933 and one in 1940, that just set the standards for how mutual funds can be bought and sold, how mutual funds can be operated, for how financial advisors have to act and what they have to disclose. And those rules are still in effect today and really regulate and govern the lives of financial advisors and investors today. If if you're ever talking to a mutual fund manager and behind the scenes when they're talking shop, you'll hear all the time people say 40 act funds. And that's nineteen the, the Securities Act of 1940. Wow! And it's still in the lexicon today for investors. And that came from the crash of 29. Wow! Yeah. And obviously, out of the New Deal also came Social Security, right. which was passed in 1935. And one of the ways that FDR and the New Deal helped people get back to work, and that was necessary back then because unemployment was 25 percent, mm-hmm. which is almost inconceivable mm. these days, was the Works Progress, the WPA, mm-hmm. which was responsible for tens of thousands of projects all over the country. You can't go anywhere in this country pretty much without coming across a road, a school, a bridge, a dam, something that was built by these unemployed people who were able to work for the government. Yep. And they put them to work doing these things. Mm-hmm. So what is your takeaway, as we're winding down here, what is your takeaway for investors? Like, What's one good lesson 
from the Great uh, Depression that our listeners should take away? There was a lawyer during the Great Depression named Benjamin Roth who kept a really incredible diary. So he, he was a lawyer, but he was kind of an amateur investor, too, and kind of an amateur economist, really smart guy. And his son published the biography, I think, five years ago. It's called A Great Depression, The Diary, A Diary. And it's really fascinating just to see a, 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 a layman's perception of what happened during the Depression. And he constantly writes about, in 1932, 1933, he uses like the same phrasing over and over again. He says, everyone knows stocks are cheap, but nobody has any cash to buy them. Hmm. And he just talks about it all over the place. He says, not just stocks, he's talking about buildings and real estate in his neighborhood. There's a warehouse down the street, it's selling for nothing, but nobody has any cash to buy it. And it just, and he writes about it in the sense of like all this opportunity that's lost. And if anyone had any cash during that period, they could mint a fortune. There was just opportunity laying right in front of them, but no one had any cash saved up. So to me, I used to write about this quite a bit when I, when I, when I was here at The Motley Fool. People really discount cash as an asset when things are going well. Cash doesn't earn a return. Why would you want to earn cash? Put your money to work. It's, it's not doing anything for you. Mm-hmm. The value of cash is what it can do for you when things get when things turn down and things eventually will. That's when you earn your return on cash. And so I've always held more cash than I think any financial advisor would say is necessary. But that's why I do it. And I think I'm earning a good return on my cash. I'm just not going to realize that return until things get hairy again. <laughs> so you're kind of maybe hoping for a little downturn so you just, can just put that not, cash not a, to work. Not a great depression, just, just a mediocre just a okay. depression. Just, so, just, so an o- just an okay depression. I'm so, so depression. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to stick around because uh, I'm not going to let you leave. That's, so. <laughs> that's part of the deal. All right. I'm handcuffed. <laughs> Thanks to Audible for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Audible makes traffic an escape you can look forward to in your car. You can access an unbeatable selection of the bestsellers, mysteries, thrillers, and motivation. When you're done listening to us here on Answers, you can transform your commute. Just ride with Audible. Longtime listeners know that, of course, I'm going to recommend the audiobook for Unmentionable, A Victorian Lady's Guide to Sex, Marriage, and Manners. It's the book that was written by my best friend, Teresa O'Neill. You'll also remember her when she came on and did the episode episode about the Witch of Wall Street. Well, her latest book, like I said, it's a New York Times bestseller, and it gives a hilarious view on what it was really like to be a lady in Crinoline. You can check it out on Audible. And you know what? You can even get it for free. For our audience, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com fool and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Losers, weepers, finders, keepers, that's how it begins. Somebody loses. So as we revisit different market crashes this month, we're also going to test your knowledge of the era. And since this series is going to last four parts, we're going to play four rounds of trivia. And today we're starting with the 20s and 30s. So you get to take turns picking categories, and the other person can steal the points, by the way. Uh, So the categories are geography, entertainment, arts and literature, science and tech, sports and leisure, and history. These are trivial pursuit categories, by the way. Morgan, you're the guest, so you get to go first. I want history. All right, history is tough because these are always going to be history. So I'm kind of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't, I'm not super proud of this, but basically all of the history questions are going to have to do with Times People of the Year. Okay. So from okay. that, from around this era, and this is all 20s and 30s. In 1930s, two women were named Person of the Year by Time. Can you name at least one of them? What year? It's in the 1930s, the decade in of the, the 1930s. 30s. Yep. 
Uh, Was Eleanor Roosevelt one of them? No, but you would think that. Bro, do you want to steal? Okay, I can only remember the first, is one first name Francis? Nope. Dang. Uh, I can't remember her last name. It was the woman who was really responsible for Social Security. Francis Perkins? That's it. No. Okay. Wallace Simpson, which you might recall is the woman who King Edward uh, married after he abdicated the throne, and then the wife of Chiang Kai-shek. So Chiang Kai-shek and his wife uh, both received it. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. That was by what I was going to say next. Uh, by the way, some of these will be easy. Some of these I will be very surprised okay. if you get right. So yeah. don't worry about it. Uh, all right, bro, your turn. Here, thanks. Well, it's up to you. You got to pick it up. Oh, man. Uh, well, let's go with entertainment. Entertainment. Okay. The Depression effectively ended the jazz age, but the music goes on. And while music in general took a sad turn with songs such as Brother Can You Spare a Dime... One song was jaunty and optimistic enough to help get FDR elected in 1932. Do you remember the name of the song? Uh, I'll say In the Mood. <laughs> Blue skies smiling at me. That's that a it? good guess, too. No, it's Happy Days Are Here Again. Okay. It was originally published in 1929, became FDR's campaign song, and later the unofficial theme of the DNC. The song has been associated also with the repeal of Prohibition, and it has appeared in over 80 films since 1930. Wow. Yeah. Boy, you guys are not doing so hot. But that's no, okay. That's okay. I still think you're smart. All Thanks. Right, your turn, Morgan. Okay. Um, science and tech. Science and tech. All right, so this is a quote from the book Once in Golconda, which is about the crash. And in it, they write, Automobile stocks were to the stock market of the 1920s what electronics would be to that of the 1950s. At this time, what four companies were known as the four horsemen of the boom? And I will give it to you if you can name more than one. For, for automobile stocks? This is the, these companies were known as the four horsemen of the boom. Okay. Well, it wasn't Ford because Ford wasn't public back then. No. So I'm, gonna, so that I'm crossing that off. Yep. General Motors. Yes. And I'll give this to you if you can guess one of the others. Do I get to take a guess if he doesn't? No. Yeah. No. If he gets it wrong, you can steal it. Okay. I, I got to think about this. Um, do, 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 do. Packard. Nope. Ah, Chrysler and Mack Truck. Nope. What? General they Motors. They were in the Dow in 1929. Well, here's Not the answer. Packard. General Motors, Fisher Body, DuPont, and Yellow I was Cab. Ga- See, okay, I had DuPont in my head because William DuPont was the guy back then. But I thought William DuPont was the guy who ran General Motors. I don't know. Is that not true? I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to have to take it up with Once in Golconda. I don't know. In the book, uh, they no, also no, write... No, William Durant. That's who it is. Oh. That's, that was who the General Motors guy. So the book goes on to say that a standard Wall Street joke was to speak of the market collectively as a product of General Motors. So That's anyway. not a very good joke. Huh. <laughs> Huh. I've heard better. <laughs> All right, bro, your turn. People were very funny about that. Uh, let's see. Just to choose something different, I'll go with art and literature, even though I doubt I will get it right. All right. John Steinbeck said the following when talking about what book he was about to commence writing. I want to put a tag of shame on the greedy bastards who are responsible for this, the Great Depression. He famously said, I've done my damnedest to rip a reader's nerves to rags. 1939's Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. Go. Good job. Of course, it went on to win National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Hey, you got one. I did get one. All Woo-hoo. right, Morgan, you ready? Yep, geography. All right, geography. This is a short one. In 1926, Route 66 was created, and it ran between which two cities? One is probably Albuquerque, right? No? Am I close? 
Well, I mean, it does go from the West to the <laughs> Midwest. Um, it's mentioned in Nat King Cole's song, so that's a good guess. Yeah, but like, there's a million cities named right. in that Nat King Cole song. <laughs> I don't know. That's my guess. Do you think you I can try. steal it, bro? Uh, Washington, D.C. to L.A. <laughs> L.A. to Chicago. Well, I got one of them right. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, no. well I guess so. I, I mean, I'm the one who looked this up. If I got this wrong, I'm sorry. All right, then the last one goes to bro, sports and leisure. Sure, why not? Unless if it has nothing to do with football, I'm out of luck. But no, none ahead. of these are going to have to. All right. Well, let's, football didn't really begin until the 20s, so. Let's see if you know your onions. Which of the following <laughs> is not a term for being drunk in the 1920s and 30s? Boiled as an owl, burning with a blue flame, on the gooseberry lay, half seas over, or on a toot. <laughs> Which one isn't? Yeah. They all seem acceptable. They right? all sound, <laughs> and I think we should bring them all back. <laughs> what was the one about a goose? On the gooseberry lay. Well, it sounds controversial, so I'll choose it. <laughs> You're right! Hey! Allison just made and that I don't up. even drink! No, well, on the gooseberry lay actually means that you're making money by stealing clothes off of clotheslines. While drunk. <laughs> and if you drink too much giggle water, you might just pull a Daniel Boone, which means to throw up. So... Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a fun one. Poor Daniel Boone. Oh, bro, you won that. <laughs> Two right. to Zippy. But that's okay, Morgan. You showed your smarts. I'll try. You I'll showed try. your smarts to the rest of the show. So <laughs> we'll give you a break on this. Morgan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll see you again next week, huh? Maybe. Oh, please. Okay. okay. Well, I'll bring the gooseberry. South wind, woo, 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 woo. Blow me home again. Blow me home again. South wind, woo, woo. Let me roam again. Let me roam again. The postcards, they keep coming. I love it. So, some of our listeners are apparently going on epic trips and they keep sending cards from their journeys. So, here, do you want here's the latest stack. Okay. Two of those people are Lee. Lee sent us cards from Cambodia and Vietnam, and we also have another listener who sent a card from Iceland and basically just said, "The last stop, my last stop on our trip," and but didn't write their name. So, I'm not sure exactly which of our listeners this is the last stop on their trip, but Thank you. And then Clay sent a card from South Carolina, our first. That's our first from South Carolina? Oh, it's our first from South Carolina. Civil War themed on top of it. Yeah. You're actually going to South Carolina next week. I am. That's right. For the one member event, one South Carolina. Very nice. Well, people will look forward to seeing you there. And and when you see Bro, go up to him and tell him how much you love the podcast, (laughs) if you're there. (laughs) What they'll say is they'll come up and say how much they love Allison. That's what they'll say. It's so true. You guys are the best. All right. That's the show. I want to thank Morgan again for joining us. If you want more Morgan, and I think you do, head over to the Collaborative Funds website. It's collaborativefund.com slash blog. There you can read all of Morgan's columns and get his latest thoughts. The show is edited on a tootingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everyone. <laughs>